December 29, 1972. Eastern Airlines Flight 401, a Lockheed TriStar, is on approach to land at Miami International Airport. 176 people are on board this flight from New York's JFK Airport. When the crew lowers the landing gear, the light indicating that the nose landing gear is locked in place fails to illuminate. The crew begins troubleshooting the problem to determine whether or not they can safely land. Distracted by investigating this problem, they end up crashing into the Everglades, killing 101 people on board. December 28, 1978. United Flight 173 is on approach to land at Portland International Airport in Oregon. 181 passengers and eight crew members have just flown from Denver on an uneventful flight. When the crew lowers the landing gear, they hear a thud, feel a strange vibration in the aircraft, and the light indicating that the right landing gear is locked fails to illuminate. The plane circles Portland for an hour while the crew troubleshoots the problem before crashing into a suburban neighborhood, killing 10 on board. What do these flights have in common? How could such a simple problem, like a single failed light bulb, result in a plane crash and loss of life? Could this still happen today? We'll find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, as always, I'm Gus, and I have a, a passion for airline aircraft incidents, and uh, I've been, I don't know, I guess like kind of researching them uh, <laughs> in, a, in an amateur way, which is a weird thing to say, for, for many years now. And I'm joined by Chris, who's, uh, who's new to all of this information. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, thank you. So you really, for the most part, don't know much about any of this. You've flown, you know, yeah. like, a, like a normal person, but you don't, it's not something you're, you're super passionate about. Well, I shouldn't say that. Well, it's not something you're super... I'm passionate now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you haven't looked into it. You haven't done like your own research and stuff yeah. uh, on the outside. So I want to thank everyone for uh, listening. And as always, you can follow us on social at Black Box Down Pod. And uh, I highly recommend you give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, tell a friend to, to listen to our podcast. And we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive today. We have a two-in-one episode today, Chris. A twofer. A twofer. Yeah. Uh, both flights sound like they have a very similar issue. They're coming into land and a light indicating that the landing gear is locked in place fails to illuminate. And for whatever reason, both of these planes end up crashing. So we're going to deal with these one at a time. We're gonna, okay. we'll, we'll do them chronologically. First, we'll talk about uh, Eastern Airlines Flight 401. So, uh, like I said, it was December 29th, 1972. And uh, this was a flight from New York's JFK Airport to Miami. And it was in a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. So, uh, a little bit of trivia. This plane, this Lockheed TriStar, was the last non-Russian wide-body jet that was brought to market by a company other than Boeing or Airbus. It seems like whenever we talk about an incident, it's always Boeing or Airbus. Like, they're the two big ones. Uh, this was the last time a non-Russian company made a wide-body plane. The TriStar was actually really ahead of its time, super innovative, had a lot of great technology in it. It had systems to automatically land itself. Uh, it just didn't take off for whatever reason. Yeah. So they just don't make any planes anymore? So Lockheed does not make any planes for civil aviation, but they do tons of aviation work for uh, the U.S. government. You know, they make fighter jets and helicopters and like tons of stuff for the military gotcha uh so like uh the f-35 or the f-22 the f-16 black hawk helicopters i mean like anything you anything anytime you think of the military and what they're flying it's a there's a good chance lockheed makes it okay this flight in particular was under the command of captain robert albin loft who was ranked 50th in seniority at eastern airlines he'd been at the airline for 32 years and had a total of 29,700 flight hours so super experienced. His first officer was Albert John Stockstill, who had 5,800 hours. And the flight engineer was Donald Lewis Repo, who had 15,700 hours. So like I said, this was a very uneventful flight. Everything was operating normally until 11.32 p.m. when the flight began its approach into Miami International Airport. Mm -hmm. uh, they lowered the landing gear 
and first officer Stockstill noticed that the indicator light for the nose gear did not turn on. So like the little lights that tell them that the landing gear is locked in place. Okay. So, you know, in response, the pilots, uh, they cycled the landing gear a couple of times, but the confirmation light still does not come on to let them know that the gear is down and locked. I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler here. Uh, the light bulb had burned out, but the crew didn't know that. So oh. they have to troubleshoot the issue, right? Again, it's checklists. Uh-huh. So they, 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 they want to troubleshoot the issue because they don't know that the bulb is burned out. So they need to make sure that the landing gear is down and locked. That way they can land safely. So by all indications, the landing gear is down. It just doesn't light up? Correct. They don't know that. They don't know if the landing gear is actually down or not mm-hmm. or, um, or what's going on. But in reality, we know this now in retrospect. The landing gear was actually down. Just huh. the light bulb t- telling them that was burned out. Wow. So Captain Loft tells the tower that uh, they're no longer continuing their approach. And the tower clears them to hold at 2,000 feet over the Everglades out to the west. Uh, it was a clear night. You know, like I said, it was dark and there was no moon. So as the plane's climbing to its assigned altitude, the cockpit crew removed the light assembly and a repo was dispatched to the avionics bay beneath the flight deck to confirm that the gear was down. There's like a little porthole down there he could look through. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, so the avionics bay down there, it holds the computer systems that the plane uses uh, beneath the flight deck. So 50 seconds after they reached their assigned altitude of 2,000 feet, Loft instructed Stockstill to put the plane into autopilot for the next 80 seconds uh, or so. The plane maintained level flight. Uh, but then it dropped 100 feet, and then it flew level for two more minutes. Then it started a scent that was so small and gradual that the crew did not notice. And over the next 70 seconds, the plane dropped a total of 250 feet. Uh, and at this time, it triggered a warning chime located at the engineer station. But the engineer was below the flight deck and couldn't hear it. And the captain and first officer were so fixated on the light bulb that they didn't pay attention to that warning chime. What? Yeah. So again, it's all these small problems. So over the next 50 seconds, the plane had dropped to around 900 feet and the crew told the tower they were ready to come back and air traffic control instructed them to turn left to a heading of 180. And as they started the turn, the crew realized something was wrong and uh, they had this brief conversation. Uh, Stockstill says, we did something to the altitude. Loft replies, what? Stockstill says, we're still at 2000 feet, right? And Loft says, hey, what's happening here? And less than 10 seconds later, the plane crashes about 19 miles west-northwest of the airport at a speed of 227 miles an hour. Uh, Like I said, the plane was in mid-turn, so the left wingtip hits the ground first, then the left engine and landing gear, uh, and it made three trails through the sawgrass. When the main part of the fuselage hit the ground, it moved through the grass and water and broke up as it went. Uh, As luck would have it, there was an airboat pilot, Robert Bud Marquis, who was out frog gigging with a friend, Ray Dickinson, and he witnessed the crash and rushed over to help try to rescue survivors. Uh, Marquis received burns to his face, arms, and legs as a result of spilled jet fuel, but he shuttled people in and out of the crash site that night and the next day. Wow. Uh, uh, Yeah, they were super lucky that he was there. Uh, Marquis received a humanitarian award from the National Air Disaster Alliance Foundation and the Illumitech Airboat Hero Award from the American Airboat Search and Rescue Association. There were a total of 163 passengers, 10 flight attendants, and the three cockpit crew on this plane. Uh, Only 67 passengers and eight flight attendants survived. Wow. Yeah. uh, Despite the injuries of the flight attendants, they were actually credited with helping other survivors by telling them, you know, not to strike any matches. And they started getting the survivors to sing Christmas carols to, like, keep up their hope and to try to make noise to draw attention to rescuers. Wow. They didn't have flashlights. Flashlights were not standard equipment on the plane at this time. First Officer Stockstill died on impact. Uh, Captain Loft died in the wreckage before he could be transported to a hospital. And Engineer Repo was evacuated to a hospital, but uh, he succumbed to his injuries and died in the hospital. 
Most of the passengers who, uh, who perished were in the aircraft's midsection, and it's thought that mud from the swamp may have blocked the wounds of the survivors and prevented them from bleeding out. But this also gave some of them really bad infections that gave them the potential for gas gangrene. And eight of them actually became infected and had to be treated in hyperbaric chambers. So like super pressurized chambers. Damn. Uh, All of the survivors had injuries. Uh, Only 17 of them had minor injuries that did not require any hospitalization. That's wild. Okay, so I have two questions, okay? Okay, go ahead. One, Marquis, the rescue guy, he was frog licking? Gigging. (laughs) Frog gigging. Frog gigging? (laughs) Yeah. is that just where he's looking for frogs? Yeah, he's catching frogs. Okay, uh, all right. Sorry, that just stuck out to me. Because you went to UT, right? Uh-huh. You may not realize this, but you know how the Aggies say gigum? Yeah. Uh, it's a rally cry against Texas Christian University because their mascot's the horned frogs. Oh. So, you know, gigging is like <laughs> like, like spearing frogs and catching them. Oh, it's he's he was murdering frogs? <laughs> he... <laughs> Let's not put it that way. Okay, okay, sorry. I mean, he's a good, great guy. The, man, he the saved, man's a hero. Yeah, he's a hero. Yeah, sorry. It's not important. I'm going to get back on track. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so did this whole thing happen because they just didn't notice that they were descending? Like Right. right. They put the plane into autopilot in order uh-huh. to troubleshoot this light. And for some reason, the autopilot did not maintain at 2,000 feet like they thought it would. And then they start turning the plane Right, and then they're much lower than they realize, and then they just end up hitting the swamp. Do they not see out the window? It's dark, remember? And they're out over the swamp, They so they can't oh. really see. It's not like they're over a city. Yeah, okay. I was just like, how do they not realize that they're like almost at the ground? <laughs> yeah, they're, it's just so dark outside, and they've descended so slowly that they don't realize how low they are. And then it's just, wait, our altitude's wrong. Oh, wait, oh, and then it's too late. Right, yeah. By that point, Man. they're way too late. There's nothing that can be done. Wow. I mean, the big question, of course, is why didn't the autopilot keep them at 2,000 feet? You know, why did they end up so low over the swamp? Yeah. So the NTSB discovers that the autopilot had been inadvertently switched from altitude hold to control wheel steering mode. And I'm going to explain a little bit about that. Uh huh. So in control wheel steering mode, once the pilot releases pressure on the yoke, the autopilot maintains the pitch altitude selected until the pilot moves the yoke again. So basically, the pilot can control the pitch of the plane, and the autopilot will maintain that pitch until the pilot moves the yoke again. Investigators think that the autopilot switched modes when the captain accidentally leaned against the yoke when he turned to talk to the flight engineer. Oh. The speculation is that the captain turned around to talk to the flight engineer who was behind him and put a little bit of pressure forward on the stick, which the autopilot interpreted as you know, oh, switch modes and slowly Uh descend. So then investigators also believe that the captain and first officer were too distracted with the light bulb to hear that chime of the altitude alert that I talked about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I said, it was the middle of the night, no lights on the ground for reference, and it was pitch black, and the change in pitch was so slight that they didn't notice. So the autopilot is, it's really just based upon like, what do you call that thing? The steering wheel? The yoke. The yoke. Is it's so sensitive where it's like you just set the yoke and then hit like autopilot, like a cruise control in your car or something? Um, well, in this particular plane, the way that they toggled from altitude hold to control wheel steering mode was to put pressure on the yoke. And huh. it just so happened that the pilot put enough pressure on to make that change happen. Yeah. The final uh, NTSB report cited the cause of the crash as pilot error. Uh, the failure of the flight crew to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of the flight and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. 
preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating the system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed. Uh, and one of the outcomes of this um, tragedy was that flashlights are now standard equipment in your jump seats, and all jump seats are outfitted with shoulder harnesses. I'm sure when you get on planes now, you see you know, where the flight attendants sit down, there's always a flashlight right there next to them. Yeah. And that's a direct result now because of this accident. So uh, there's a bit of trivia, like a little bit of a, a weirdness that I'm, I'm, we're going to end uh, this Eastern Airlines story with. The, the plane was obviously it crashed into the swamp, but there were some parts of the plane that were okay, right? Like there were parts uh-huh. of the galley, uh, like ovens and, you know, carts and stuff that were on the plane that the airline reclaimed and continued to use in other planes. And in fact, over the following months and years, employees of Eastern Airlines began reporting sightings of the captain and flight engineer sitting on other L-1011 flights. They would say that flights that had uh, salvaged parts or refitted parts, that they were haunted and that they, oh. they would see ghosts of the captain and the flight engineer on those other, uh, on those other planes that were using you know, the, the parts from the crashed plane. That's creepy. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. And sightings of the ghosts spread to the point where uh, Eastern Airlines management warned employees that they could face dismissal if they were caught spreading ghost stories. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Eastern <laughs> Airlines publicly denied that their planes were haunted, but they went ahead and removed all the salvage parts from their L-1011 fleet anyway. And uh, over time, the ghost sightings did stop. Yeah. The floorboard from Flight 401 remains in the archives at the History Miami Museum, and pieces of the wreckage can be found in the Ed and Lorraine Warrens Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. Uh, the Warrens, you know, that's uh, that's um, the movie Annabelle the Conjurer. Annabelle, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's them, right? Yeah, yeah. The story of the crash and its aftermath were documented in the book The Ghost Flight of 401 by John G. Fuller. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fuller recounts stories of paranormal events aboard other Eastern planes, and Eastern actually considered suing for libel. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the CEO of Eastern Airlines, uh, Frank Borman, chose not to with the thought that the lawsuit would only give more publicity to the book. Yeah. Also, how, can you sue for libel for ghost sightings? Because you can't prove that someone didn't see a ghost. Yeah, I have have no idea. It would have been interesting if that did go to trial, Uh uh, but it did not. However, uh, Loft's widow and child did sue Fuller for infringement of Loft's right of publicity, invasion of privacy, and for infliction of emotional distress, but that lawsuit was dismissed. Hmm. A TV movie based on Fuller's book aired in February 1978. And in 1979, musician Bob Welsh recorded a song titled The Ghost of Flight 401, which you can listen to on YouTube, and it's, it's, it's not too bad. Yeah, it's, it's not a bad song. So there's a captain and then the first mate, right? And first then, officer, first officer, <laughs> and then the uh, engineer, right? Two of them died, and one of them lived. Is that what you said? No, they they all ended up dying. One oh, died all... on impact. One died at the crash site, uh, and then the other got uh, airlifted to the hospital and died at the hospital. Okay. If the crew had lived, would they have been like dismissed from their captain or flying duties, or like since they were deemed responsible? That's an excellent segue. To United Flight 173. Ooh. I'm going to answer your question in a little bit. Okay. Listen up, fellas. Today we have a new Manscaped product alert. Manscaped just released the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer. Take a look in the mirror, and I guarantee you'll see hair sticking out of those holes. It's time to keep your ear and nose hair looking as nice and clean-shaven as the rest of you. Uh, We all know how painful it can be to try to pluck nose hair. Don't do it. Get the Weed Whacker. 
Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with the Weed Whacker. This nose and ear trimmer provides proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. The premium Manscaped Weed Whacker uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system. Its intelligently contoured design enhances the trimming experience, and it's waterproof, which makes for easy operation and cleaning. The only nose hair trimmer on the market with a powerful rechargeable lithium-ion battery that lasts for up to 90 minutes of use. Have you ever pulled nose hair out with your fingers? That might hurt worse than nicking other delicate areas on your body. Manscaped is making whacking your weeds a time to look forward to, to delivering maximum confidence while providing hygiene. Yes, you will get a replaceable blade every three months to keep your weed whacking time clean and enjoyable. Uh, look, fellas, 79% of partners polled admitted that long nose hair was a major turnoff. It's time to upgrade your Manscaped routine with the Weed Whacker. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code BLACKBOX down at Manscaped. Thank you, Manscaped, for keeping our pubes trimmed and our hairs in our holes looking nice. So remember, get 20% off and free shipping with code BLACKBOX down at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com. Use code BLACKBOX down. What are you waiting for? Go whack your weeds. So uh, United Flight 173, like I said, was uh, was very similar to that Eastern Airlines Flight 401. So uh, now we're talking about the flight from uh, New York JFK to Portland, uh, Oregon. So Flight 173 was crewed by Captain Malburn Buddy McBroom, who's one of United's most senior pilots. He'd been with them for 27 years and had more than 27,600 hours of flight time. Uh, First Officer Roderick Beebe, who had been with United for 13 years and logged more than 5,200 hours, and Flight Engineer Forrest Mendenhall, who'd been with United for 11 years and had over 2,500 hours. Uh, the plane in this incident was McDonnell Douglas DC-8, which had four engines. So they, they actually didn't fly from New York to Portland nonstop. They flew from New York to Denver and then Denver to Portland. Okay. Um, the flight from Denver to Portland was estimated to be about 2 hours and 26 minutes with a fuel requirement of 31,900 pounds. So they took off from Denver with 46,700 pounds of fuel. And we've been over this before, why you have to weigh fuel instead of talking about volume. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all remember from the Gimli Glider from episode one. So the flight went on as normal. When they were approaching Portland, the crew prepared for landing. And as they lowered the landing gear, they noticed an abnormal vibration and yaw of the aircraft. And the landing gear indicator light did not come on. And once again, it's the same light as the same as the other plane that tells them that the landing gear is down and locked into place. So because the light did not illuminate, the crew requested to be put in a holding pattern around the airport so they could diagnose the problem. For about an hour, they tried to identify the status of the landing gear and prepare for a potential emergency landing. Uh, in fact, I believe uh, one of the crew members even goes back into the cabin and is like looking out to see if he can see the, if the landing gear is down or not. Uh-huh. Uh, so while they're in the holding pattern, their gear's down and their flaps are set to 15 degrees. You've probably heard me say this multiple times in all of our different episodes, but with gear down and flaps down, that creates more drag. And drag makes a plane burn more fuel. Oh no, I know where this is going. Yeah, I think you have a good, you, we've been doing this enough where you know, you know how this is going to end up. So during the time, the crew failed to keep an eye on their fuel levels. And as the crew prepared for their final approach, they lost number one and number two engines to flame out. And flame out is just a rundown of jet engine due to extinction of the flame in the combustion chamber. And it can be caused by fuel exhaustion. The last radio transmission to the tower was a declaration of Mayday, and the plane crashed into a wooded section of a populated suburb of Portland, about six nautical miles southeast of the airport at about 6.14 p.m. Flight engineer Mendenhall and flight attendant Joan Wheeler were killed, along with eight other passengers, and there were 23 that were seriously injured. A group of Air Force helicopters were doing some training flights in the area, and they immediately diverted to the crash and transported many of the survivors to local hospitals. Okay, so... 
Why didn't they stick their head out the hole like the other guys did? This was not for the nose gear, if I'm remembering properly. This was for the gear on the right side of the plane. Mm. Uh, also, this was a DC-8 versus the L-1011. Mm. I do not believe the the DC-8 had the same access to the avionics bay and the same porthole like the L-1011 okay. did. And then, so they're just circling, trying to figure out the landing gear. How long before they realize they're out of fuel and then they crash? Is it just like, oh, oh my God, we're out of fuel and then they go down? Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to get into this in, in detail here in a bit. Okay. Uh, but essentially, they are aware that the fuel is going down, but mm-hmm. the captain is maybe unaware of how severe the situation is. Maybe he underestimates oh. uh, the severity of, uh, of the problem that they're facing. Gotcha. So the investigation revealed that the thump and the yaw that the crew noticed during the lowering of the landing gear was due to a failed retract cylinder assembly in the right main landing gear. And uh, it was basically th- that assembly is what allows the landing gear to go down smoothly. So basically the landing gear just kind of fell down and locked into place instead of just being controlled down. And th- so the gear was actually down and locked. Uh, but even though it was locked into place, it had fallen down with so much force that it had damaged a little micro switch that caused the circuit to fail. So that's why the cockpit light didn't come on. Gotcha. So it was it deployed wrong and then the light didn't turn on. It was still there. Yeah, it deployed so violently that it broke the indicator to tell the cockpit that it was down. Huh. Okay. So according to NTSB, you know, the crew made the right call to abort the landing. Uh, however, the accident occurred because the flight crew became so absorbed with diagnosing that light and the problem that they failed to monitor the fuel state and calculate a time at which they needed to return to land or risk fuel exhaustion. The NTSB determined that the failure of the captain to properly monitor the fuel state and the failure to properly respond to the low fuel state is the probable cause for the accident. And the NTSB believes that this accident exemplifies a recurring problem, which is a breakdown in cockpit management and teamwork during a situation involving malfunctions of aircraft systems in flight. Hmm. A contributing factor to the crash was the failure of the other two flight crew members to fully comprehend the criticality of the fuel state or to successfully communicate their concern to the captain. According to the transcripts of the cockpit recordings, the fuel situation was known and on the minds of the pilot and crew to some degree. In the transcript at about 5.49, First Officer Beebe asked Captain McBroom, what's the fuel show now? To which McBroom replied, five. And Beebe gave an acknowledgement by repeating, five. Seven Mm. minutes later, at 5.56, First Officer Beebe again asked how much fuel was left, to which Engineer Mendenhall replied, 4,000 pounds in each. Uh, I don't know, know if that's each wing or each tank. It's not very clear. Uh, There's four tanks on this particular plane, one for each engine. Yeah. Uh, It should also be noted that the amount of time 1,000 pounds of fuel can bring is dependent on a lot of factors. Like we talked about, you know, the gear was down, the flaps were down. There's just, it's hard to say. Uh, Which is why it's important to calculate fuel and time right before flight and sometimes mid-flight if needed. Uh, But we can assume that 1,000 pounds of fuel uh, might give them six to seven minutes of flight at this stage. Gotcha. And he said they had four Correct. In, and it's unknown how many different tanks. Who knows? Right. Saying. At 6.02, flight engineer Mendenhall said they had about 3,000 pounds of fuel left. Uh, and it's hard to tell from the transcript if this was acknowledged by the captain uh, or the first officer as the captain was in the middle of talking about the landing procedure. And this was the last time fuel was mentioned until 6.06 when the first officer stated they were losing an engine due to fuel and the tape ends just before 6.14. So, you know, they, they start talking about it asking about the fuel at 549, uh-huh. uh, which was you know 25 minutes before that. Wow. The last mention was how long before they crashed? And the last time fuel was mentioned was uh, 6.06 when the first officer said that they were losing an engine due to fuel. So, I mean, at that point... They're like, you know, oh, shit. They're out, right. Yeah. 
Um, and there was some talk in the media about issues with the fuel gauges in this model of aircraft. Um, this is actually really confusing. I'm only going to touch on it very briefly uh, because I, I think it's 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 not necessarily very relevant to the cause of the crash, but just to talk about like how there could be some confusion. On May 12th, 1978, this aircraft was retrofitted with a new fuel quantity indicating system. Uh, with the new system, there were eight individual tank quantity gauges that displayed three digits on each panel. The number displayed needed to be multiplied by 100 to get the actual amount of fuel in the tank. What? For example, if it said 10, you multiply by 100 to know that there's actually 1,000 pounds of fuel in the tank. That's, why would they do, and then there's four different gauges for each tank? Uh, there's eight individual tank quantity eight gauges. Tank. Right. So you're, you're looking at eight numbers and then multiplying by 100, by 100 by all. Right. That's such a convoluted system. But there's also a totalizer gauge that receives input oh. from each individual tank and displays the total fuel available on three digital readouts. But the number shown on this display needs to be multiplied by 1,000 to get the actual number of pounds. <sighs> Why can't they just do that? <laughs> it's it's, it's and, just to try to save numbers so you don't end up with big numbers, right? So it's like instead of saying you have 60,000 pounds of fuel, you just write 60. Like, and you know, like, oh, that's 60,000 pounds. Okay. It, I, trust me, I know. It's, it's, it's really confusing. That's kind of why I just wanted to touch on this a little bit. Just to say, like, yeah. it, it, you can't be like, oh, it's not like you just look in your car fuel gauge and be like, oh, it's a super simple thing to read. You got to look at a number and maybe do a little bit of math and know, you know how the system works. And that being said, I've run out of gas in my car before. So. <laughs> and it's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's pretty inexcusable. Yeah. Uh, and then before this change, like I said, this was, a, this, this was a retrofitted system. Before this change, each individual tank gauge displayed five digits, which directly read how much fuel was in each tank. This change also replaced the flight engineer's totalizer gauge, which previously had displayed six digits that directly read the total remaining fuel on board. So basically this change cut off a bunch of zeros. Hmm. And so the pilots were all used to a bunch of different systems at different times. Right. So United Airlines made this change in order to fix errors caused by wiring and interference from other systems. And it may be possible the crew could have been interpreting the numbers incorrectly based on what display they were looking at. Uh, the NTSB actually addresses this problem in their report as Operations Alert Bulletin to have FAA inspectors assure that crew training stressed differences in fuel quantity measuring instruments and that crews flying with the new system are made aware of the possibility of misinterpretation of gauge readings. So... The NTSB recognizes that fuel gauge issue might have contributed to the crew's confusion towards the end of the flight. They do emphasize that the captain should never have allowed such a situation to develop in the first place. And the NTSB made the recommendation in an operations bulletin to all air carrier operations inspectors to urge their assigned operators to ensure that their flight crews are indoctrinated in principles of flight deck resource management, with particular emphasis on the merits of participative management for captains and assertiveness training for other cockpit crew members. That's a mouthful, and I'm going to explain that in a second. I promise I will. <laughs> so to answer your question earlier, Captain McBroom survived this incident, mm -hmm. uh, and he was held responsible for the accident, and he lost his pilot's license and retired from United Airlines as a result of that. Mm -hmm. uh, he spent his remaining years battling some health problems related to injuries sustained in the crash, as well as lung and prostate cancer. Family members and passengers who spoke to him at a 1998 reunion of crash survivors said he was uh, a broken man plagued by guilt over his role in the accident. And uh, he eventually passed away October 9th, 2004, at the age of 77. I mean, that would, I, I don't know if I could get over something like that. I mean, yeah. You, because how many, you said 16 people died? Uh, I believe there were 10 on this one. 10? Yeah, that's, I mean, 10 people died because you weren't paying attention to the fuel in a plant. I mean, that's. There's um uh, I really we really didn't get into some of the other details here, but it was uh, a miracle that no one on the ground was hurt 
because oh, you know, yeah. he crashed I, into a suburb of Portland. I've, I've, I've seen reports where they knew that they were going to crash and he was going to put the plane down in what he thought was a lake in the middle of the suburbs. But uh-huh. it turns out it was just like a wooded lot with no lights in it. Uh, so he like narrowly avoided an apartment complex, like flew over the top of it and put the plane down into this wooded area in the middle of uh, suburban Portland. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, so again, super lucky that no one on the ground uh, was injured. But still, like you know, like you said, ten people passed away. That's yeah. It's it's awful. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about that mouthful of stuff I said a second ago, and we're talking about crew resource management. Mm-hmm. This is a big deal. Crew resource management is the big takeaway from these two incidents. Okay. Uh, the NTSB's recommendation addressing flight resource management problems was the genesis for major changes in the way airline crew members are trained. The new training addressed behavioral management challenges such as poor crew coordination, loss of situational awareness, and judgment errors frequently observed in aviation accidents, and is credited with launching the crew resource management revolution in airline training. NASA held a conference to examine the potential merits of this training after the 1977 Tenerife disaster, which we have not talked about, but we will probably talk about uh, at some point here. In 1981, United Airlines instituted the industry's first crew resource management program for pilots, and the program is now used throughout the world, prompting some to call this accident as one of the most important accidents in aviation history. Whoa. Um, Really? Yeah, they're talking about uh, Tenerife, because the Tenerife accident is kind of what started this all, but these other accidents were also contributing factors. Okay. Crew resource management is a set of training procedures for use in environments where human error can have devastating effects. Crew resource management focuses on interpersonal communication, leadership, and decision-making in the cockpit of an airliner. While retaining a command hierarchy, the concept was insisted to foster a less authoritarian cockpit culture where co-pilots are encouraged to question captains if they observe them making mistakes. Because before crew resource management, it was the captain, right? The captain's word was it. Yeah. Crew resource management kind of helps people identify as a team and work together. And if the first officer sees something wrong, it encourages them to speak up and say something. United Airlines additionally trained their flight attendants with crew resource management in conjunction with the pilots to provide another layer of enhanced communication and teamwork. Uh, With both groups using crew resource management, communication barriers are reduced, problems are solved more efficiently, uh, which uh, leads to increase in safety. Uh, These concepts have been modified for air traffic control, ship handling, firefighting, medical operating rooms. It's really... It's really hard to overstate how important this is, uh, not only for aviation, but for all kinds of uh, industries. But obviously, this is an aviation theme podcast, so we're talking yeah. about uh, specifically how it uh, pertains to aviation. Uh, and it, it really has made things a lot safer, I think, in my opinion. And more than anything else, this uh, crew resource management has been one of the things that has made flying so safe nowadays. Yeah, and there's, of course, other things, you know, we can better manufacture titanium, fewer impurities, uh, better materials, a better understanding of the world. But a crew resource management is, is super important. Yeah, it just eliminates, uh, helps eliminate human error. Right? Yes, it's absolutely. Just- uh, an expert named Todd Bishop developed a five-step assertive process for crew resource management. The first step is to get the attention of an individual by addressing them directly with a name, title, or whatever else will get their attention. The second step is to state your concern Express your analysis of the situation in a direct manner while owning your emotions about it. So an example of this is, I'm concerned we may not have enough fuel to fly around this storm. Hmm. The third step is to state the problem as you see it. An example would be, we are showing only 40 minutes of fuel left. The fourth step is to state a solution like, let's divert to another airport and refuel. And the last step is to obtain agreement or acknowledgement by directly asking the individual what they think about the situation. So it's, it's pretty much you know, just like, Get someone's attention, 
state the concern, state the problem, state a solution, and then agree on what, what the solution is. Yeah. And don't, and don't hide your emotion. Be like, I'm concerned or. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It, it seems weird, right? It seems like so basic. And so like, you shouldn't have to be trained to do this, but uh, it really helps. It, it really has, has helped tremendously. And Captain Al Haynes, who was the pilot of United Airlines Flight 232, uh, which is an incident we have not talked about yet, he credits crew resource management as being one of the factors that saved his own life in the crash of July uh, 1989. He stated that up until 1980, when they worked on the concept that the captain was the authority on the aircraft, and whatever he said goes, and they lost a few airplanes because of that. Hmm. United Flight 232, I think, is a super interesting one. Uh, we are going to cover that incident in the future. I, I think United 232 is maybe the incident that got my attention. I think that's what got me started in being interested in aircraft incidents. I was 11 years old when that happened. And I remember seeing it uh, on television. Hmm. So anyway, that's it. Two uh, terrible tragedies that ultimately lead to this concept of crew resource management that have made uh, flying so incredibly safe today. Uh, I have t- one. I think we could use some crew resource management for... Uh relationship advice in general <laughs> it sounds like it would help people like oh man that'd be really good for dating advice <laughs> how do you com- you communicate your problem voice your concern <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, I'll text it to you chris i'll text you the five <laughs> steps that way uh, you, you can use it in the future and then and then also the other thing that I was, I was curious on the first one it all started because the light bulb went out of on a little indicator is there not a system in place to like replace the light bulbs every year or something? Or has that ever been fixed? Uh, so, okay, we didn't, there, 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 there is a lot more detail here that we didn't get into, right? So mm-hmm. there's ways to test. In this particular plane, there was a test mode where they enable, they turn it on. And what the test mode does is it illuminates every light in the cockpit. Okay. Uh, so they, and they actually did that uh, on that Eastern Airlines flight. And that bulb still failed to illuminate, which pretty much lets them know the lights probably just got out. So there was Uh, a way to test it. Right. There was a way to test. And they did do that. We just didn't really get into the nitty gritty of uh, of all the steps that they were going just because the crash happened so quickly. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, there there was a way. And again, we didn't get into all the detail. The captain was becoming upset with the first officer because the first officer was flying the plane Mm -hmm. and... The, the light that was burned out was out of reach of the captain. He couldn't reach over and like fiddle with it. So the co-pilot who was supposed to be flying the plane had to do it, which is why he put the plane into autopilot. And he, you know, he popped the light out, looked at it, and then he couldn't get it to go back in. Oh. Uh, he was fumbling with it, and the captain was getting annoyed with him and yelling at him. Mm. Uh, and so it was like he was getting flustered, and it was just, it was just a bad situation. Yeah. Again, there's like all these other little minor details that – weren't bad on their own, but all contributed to no one paying attention to the fact that the plane was slowly descending. Yeah. Anyway, that's it uh, for this episode of Black Box Down. Uh, as always, uh, I want to remind everyone to give us a rating if you enjoyed it. Hopefully you did. And to follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Black Box Down Pod, where we, uh, we post images or links to things that we talk about that maybe you want to see a little more in detail. Can we post a picture of Marquis the Frog Spear? I'll see if I can find a photo of him uh, to post. The Frog Gigger. Gigger, sorry. I'll see if I can find a The photo. Frog Murderer. No, no, no. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys uh, next week. Just want to say thank you for listening to Black Box Down. We're taking a short break after next week's episode. Uh, we'd love to continue making more, so please share as much as you can. The more support we have, the easier it is to continue making the show. Uh, follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod on both Twitter and Instagram for more updates. And I'm sure we'll see you again real soon.